When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast. I'm glad you're here. A reading from the second letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians. It is necessary to boast, nothing is to be gained by it, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told, that no mortal is permitted to repeat. On behalf of such a one, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. But if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me, even considering the exceptional character of the revelations. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The super apostles that have tried to undermine Paul's apostolic authority, these very dynamic speakers who have come through the Corinthian church and told them that pretty much everything that Paul has said should be disregarded. One of the ways they were so convincing to the people of the Corinthian church and all the churches that they went to, these false apostles, super apostles, as they're called in Second Corinthians, is that they had a lot of amazing mystical experiences. Um, they, it seems that they used those mystical experiences to kind of one-up everybody to show that they had some kind of secret insights into the heavens or into God or into the life of Jesus that nobody else had. And they're, so when they were challenged, the answer was always, well, you just wouldn't understand because you're not one of us. Paul, who is an apostle, who defends his apostleship all through this letter, sometimes very rawly and emotionally. Sometimes he appeals to logic and credentials and his own heritage as a rabbi and um, Jewish leader. And other times he kind of uh, goes off on tangents, like all the times he got beat up and shipwrecked and left for dead and all the times he was hungry and Again, defending himself against these accusations that um, he and his colleagues are not the real apostles. And so, uh, finally, in chapter 12, he gets, addresses this 
um, issue that the super apostles are touting that they have had secret experiences with God that nobody else has. And that's why they are telling them to disregard everything that Paul says. But Paul, in his inimitable way, comes back with his own boasting. Again, he says, I speak as a fool. Um, I speak like an insane person, he says in another place. He's saying, all these accusations are making me lose my cool. Um, Here he is in chapter 12, that it is necessary to boast. Um, And I've got visions too. And here he relates a vision that he had where he was caught up into the third heaven. Um, There are three heavens in this idea of heaven. The first one is the sky that you can see. The second is outer space that you can see as well, but it's kind of far away. And the third heaven is that realm above that where God ultimately dwells in God's kingdom. Whether we take this literally in that that's how the universe is constructed um, or This is a common understanding of people from that time and even our time. We often think of the world in this way as well. We talk about people going to outer space, like the blue project of Jeff Bezos a couple months ago, where William Shatner and others went up. Um, They're like, well, they didn't quite go to outer space. They went to the upper atmosphere that is (laughs) space-like, Again, these definitions are kind of fluid once you get up that high. And so it is in Paul's world, too. They they distinguish between the places where the birds fly up in the sky, some of them quite high, like vultures and other birds that go way, 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 way up. And then they distinguish between that other heaven that seemed to be above that, where the planets and the stars and the moon... um, moved in their courses. Just with the naked eye, um, you can see a lot of the moon. You can see that it's very different from Earth. You can see that there doesn't seem to be vegetation on it, just from the naked eye. Um, And so ancient people kind of knew that when you got up there far enough, something was different, um, at least when it came to the atmosphere and and the kind of air we breathe. But the third heaven is that realm where God dwells, where ultimately Jesus ascended to. Um, And so he is caught up there. He doesn't know if it was in the body or not. Isn't that what we mean when we say we had a mystical experience? We are saying that I experienced something like the way I experience the world around me every day. I get up. I go to the coffee shop, I order a coffee, I experience people in that coffee shop making coffee, talking, sitting, talking to me. Um, And a mystical experience is that kind of experience except you're pretty sure that nobody was there or the people or the voice you heard did not have a root in reality like the coffee shop experience. And yet... It's mystical in that we don't always know what's happening or how to define it or what is happening when.
And so he says, I'm not sure if I was in the body or not. I do not know. God knows. And then, um, this is, I know a person in Christ. He says, I know of such a person. Um, this is standard apocalyptic literature speak. You don't always, you don't always say, I had an experience. I saw this. You say a person I know. Um, this is again, deflecting from the, the apostles, the super apostles claim that they have had all these direct experiences with God. Here, Paul is humble. There's another subject that Paul does the same rhetorical thing with, and that is how many people he baptized. In, um, I think it's Romans or 1 Corinthians, he says, I baptized so-and-so, and I baptized so-and-so. Uh, I'm not sure how many other people I baptized, and I'm not even sure about the ones I mentioned, if I baptized them or not. Um, Paul is very clear that he doesn't remember a lot of stuff very accurately, especially when it comes to the stuff that people are using to one-up each other in the church. Um, like, who baptized you? Did Paul baptize you? Did Apollos baptize you? Did one of the false apostles baptize you? Um, and the factionalism that was happening in the Corinthian church around these people who baptized, Paul had no time for it. He wanted to make it clear that when you're baptized, you're baptized into the covenant. And you're ultimately baptized by God's grace, not by the baptizer. Paul, your priest, your pastor, whoever baptized you is not that important when it comes to what baptism is. It is an outpouring of God's grace into your life. It's a new start. It's a new beginning. It's a sign of the covenant. It's a participation in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, so whoever administers it is just the, um, just the waiter bringing the meal. God's cooking the meal. The meal comes from God. The waiter delivers it, takes the order, um, and that's all Paul is doing. And so this mystical experience is also um, described in the same way. He's not really sure if he remembers it. But he went into paradise and he heard things that could not be uttered, that no human would be permitted to repeat. What did he hear? Um, this is his boasting. What he is saying is that I've had just as many experiences as these false apostles have had these super apostles. Um, but, but that's not the basis of his ministry. The basis of Paul's ministry is not going around trying to help people have mystical experiences. That is not the goal of our church, not the goal of any church, to facilitate people's mystical experiences. People have them. Um, they come from God most of the time. They tell us something deep and real about the truth of God or a message that we need here and now. But ultimately, Paul's ministry and the ministry of the church is, uh, is not ultimately to um, have these experiences. The, the Christian faith is, uh, is religious but not spiritual, rather than spiritual but not religious. In that, um, following Jesus is following a person. And there is a mystical connection between all people, 
including our, our connection to Jesus. What is love? What is that feeling of love? How do we know we're loved? Those are mystical things that we know about God and God's love for us. But ultimately, um, our Christianity and our fellowship with God and our relationship with God and each other is not judged by how many mystical experiences we have, by how we feel all the time. It's not judged by any of those things. It is judged by the fact that we are, we are uh, redeemed by God, that we are greatly loved by God, and that we are part of God's communion and fellowship. Um, I think different Christian traditions emphasize this more or less. Um, the more expressive versions of Christianity, like Pentecostalism, the charismatic movement, and others are going to tend to focus a little more on the, the mystical experiences and um, in worship and in singing and in speaking in tongues to have that emotional connection to God. And Anglicans and some other more liturgical Christians are going to focus more on saying the prayers, doing the work, knowing that you are loved, receiving God's grace in the sacrament of communion, which is can be emotional for sure, but it's not always that emotional. It consists of walking down an aisle, putting your hands out, receiving some bread, drinking from a cup, all things that can be done without a lot of emotion. Um, and these two different approaches to Christianity, and most people are somewhere in the middle, um, emphasize different aspects of this. But even I've talked to Pentecostals who um, will say things like, you know, it's not all about these emotional experiences. We have to also know that God loves us because God has said that God loves us. Um, we don't always have to be able to confirm that by how we feel. This is always going to be a tension in the Christian life. But I think for we creatures who are quite subjective and um, also are in need of reassurance from God, sometimes it's good to just focus on the objective nature of God's love for us. And we find that most clearly in the sacrament of communion. Um, when we are unsure of our relationship with God, the sacrament reminds us that it is all God that, that includes us in the covenant. It is not our partnership with God that we are meeting God halfway or something. It's ultimately that God meets us where we are, um, in human flesh, in bread and wine, in things that we can readily receive and know and feel. Um, not through some journey to another world, into the third heaven. And yet, we sometimes do journey into the third heaven. Paul does it, and he makes it very clear that he can boast about it if he wants, but that's not what he wants to do. What he wants to do is to get the truth of the gospel across in that Christ died for our sins, that in our suffering, in his own suffering, which he details over and over and over again in this letter, that that is how God is speaking to the world. God is speaking to the world in the sign of the crucified Messiah. He is speaking to the world in the sign of the, of the suffering apostles. That is how God is speaking to the world. Through the weakness of God, God is making it very clear where our true strength comes from. And then he gets really personal. Um, and here we have a glimpse into Paul's personal spiritual struggle that um, we scholars have puzzled over and readers of Paul have been mystified by. 
he said to keep him from being too elevated, too elated, too esoteric even, too caught up into the third heaven, to keep Paul from just seeing Christianity as some quest for mystical experiences, God gave him a thorn in his side, a thorn that stuck into his body to cause pain. I can't help but not see a parallel between the wound of Jesus in his side from the spear. I can't help but see that in parallel um, that this messenger of Satan, this thorn in his flesh, um, actually it doesn't say his side, thorn in his flesh. I just, I guess I feel that in his side. Um, a good clarification, a thorn in his flesh um, that he feels is, um, is this suffering. And we don't know what it was. He asked three times for God to take it away, to pull that thorn out of his flesh. So thorn in his flesh, I can't help but um, go a couple different ways in my thinking about the thorn in his flesh, what that meant for Paul. It's obviously he didn't want to tell us, and God knew we didn't need to know. So speculation is not that important. Whatever we conclude Paul's thorn in his flesh was, it's probably not that important. We need to hear it and then draw the parallels for our lives. We may too easily project on Paul's thorn in his flesh something that's a thorn in our flesh, a persistent weakness that doesn't go away, that causes us suffering, um, that keeps us from being too uh, up in the clouds of reality. Um, Pain has a way of making us focus on the here and now in a way that nothing else really does. Physical pain, when you are in pain physically, um, all lofty thoughts of philosophical inquiry kind of blip away and we are faced with how will I get to the restroom in time? How will I uh, pay my bills? How will I get up out of bed to feed the cat? Um, When we are suffering in physical pain, life gets really, really, really practical really fast. And this... um, this focus on the pain of this, of this thorn in his flesh tells me that it was something that inhibited him from doing his ministry. Um, we know from another text of Paul that he has trouble with his eyesight. He says, see what large, with, see with which, what large letters I write to you. Perhaps a reference to the fact that he has to write really big letters because he can't see the small ones that we know that he writes with an amanuensis, a scholar scribe that edits his work and writes it for him as he dictates it and then maybe reads it, but maybe relies on that scribe to read it because he can't read the text because his eyes. You imagine for a scholar like Paul, how hard it would be not to be able to read for oneself, to always have to find somebody to read something for him. This would be a huge thorn in his flesh that would keep him very humble. Instead of his freewheeling inquiry, he must now depend on other people. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's something else. I don't know. Um, When it says thorn in his flesh, 
Um, we think of the marriage covenant in the Garden of Eden that Paul references numerous of times that um, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, the two shall become one flesh. Um, some have speculated that this is Paul's reference to his um, struggle over human relationships, perhaps a former spouse, perhaps someone else in his life that is significant, um, or the pain of loss of that. Hard to know. Again, it is too easy for us to project some of our own stuff onto Paul. He doesn't tell us, and maybe that's good. Uh, maybe this offers a way for us to talk about our suffering too. Um, when he uses that metaphor of a thorn in his flesh and doesn't tell us what it is, um, he opens us up to then share our own thorns in our flesh um, with him. Uh, maybe we don't need to know everything about other people. Everything. We're certainly able to do that and people can. But maybe that's not the ultimate goal of sharing suffering in Jesus. Maybe it is sharing what Paul then says God told him when he asked him three times, he begged God three times to deliver him. And God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. So instead of boasting of his mystical experiences in the third heaven, he boasts about the fact that God always fills in the gaps of his strength that God's strength is made perfect in him through his weakness. And that is what he boasts about. Maybe that's what we should boast about too, if we're going to boast about anything. It is the wounds of the thorns in our flesh where God then comes in and shows us that we can still do what God has called us to do in spite of that wound, in spite of that pain, in spite of that setback, that failure, that debilitating injury that doesn't go away, that that is where the power of God really lives and really is alive. Amen. Today, the church remembers Evelyn Underhill, one of my favorites um, on the calendar of the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion and Church of England. Um, Evelyn Underhill was the only child of a prominent barrister. Does anyone know what a barrister is? I think that's a lawyer, right, in England? And his wife. Um, Evelyn Underhill was born in Wolverhampton, England. I'm not sure where that is. Somewhere in England on December 6, 1875, and grew up in London. She was educated there and in a girls' school in Folkestone, where she was confirmed in the Church of England. She had little other formal religious training, but her spiritual curiosity was naturally lively. And she read widely, developing quite a early, quite early a deep appreciation for mysticism. What a timely topic for the Second Corinthians lesson. At 16, she began a, began a lifelong devotion to writing. Evelyn had few childhood companions, but one of them, Hubert Stuart Moore, she eventually married. Other friends made later include Lawrence Hausman, Maurice Hewlett, and Sarah Bernhardt. Closest of all were Ethel Ross Barker, a devout Roman Catholic, and Baron Friedrich von Hugel, who became her spiritual director.
In the 1890s, Evelyn began annual visits to the European continent and especially to Italy. There she became influenced by the paintings of the Italian masters and by the Roman Catholic Church. She spent nearly 15 years wrestling painfully with the idea of converting to Roman Catholicism. But in the end, she discerned that she was called to remain as an Anglican. Um, this is one of the struggles of Anglican identity, is why not just become Roman Catholic? If you're going to do all the robes and all the bowing and stuff and the communion all the time, why not just go full Roman Catholic? Um, and yet Evelyn Underhill discerned that there was something in Anglicanism that was worth staying with, um, even though she felt drawn to Rome. In 1921, Evelyn Underhill became reconciled to her Anglican roots while remaining what she called a Catholic Christian. It was kind of con more controversial then to have a closer connection to the Catholic Church than it is today for most Episcopalians and Church of England folks. Um, there's a lot of ecumenical harmony between all the churches. So for one of us to go and to a service at a Catholic church in Spain or something is not controversial. Nobody would think ill of us if we did that. Uh, 1920s, late 1800s, yes, that would be seen by some as uh, a big problem. But she called herself a Catholic Christian. She continued her life of reading, writing, meditation, and prayer. She had already published her first great spiritual work, Mysticism. This was followed by many other books, culminating in her most widely read and studied book called Worship. Evelyn Underhill's most valuable contribution to spiritual literature must surely be her conviction that the mystical life is not only open to a saintly few, but to anyone who cares to nurture it and weave it into everyday experience. And also, at the time, a startling idea that modern psychological theories and discoveries, far from hindering or negating spirituality, can actually enhance and transform it. In Mysticism, she writes, we are then one and all the kindred of the mystics. And it is by dwelling upon this kinship, by interpreting so far as we may, their great declarations in the light of our little experience, that we shall learn to understand them best. Strange and far away though they seem, they are not cut off from us by some impassable abyss. They belong to us. They are our brethren, the giants, the heroes of our race, as the achievement of genius belongs not to itself only, but also to the society that brought it forth. A theolo as theology declares that the merits of the saints avail for all, so, because of the solidarity of the human family, the super supernal accomplishment of the mystics is ours also. Evelyn Underhill's writings proved appealing to many, resulting in a large international circle of friends and disciples, making her much in demand as a lecturer and retreat director. She died at age 65 on June 15, 1941. Um, one of my closest um, encounters with Evelyn Underhill was in the novel Glittering Images. I think that's the right title. Um, Susan Howitch is a novelist who wrote a series of novels about the Anglican Church, Church of England, um, which is the parallel to the Episcopal Church in America. 
um, using different writers. And one of the writers she uses in Glittering Images is Evelyn Underhill, kind of interspersing her theological reflections and mystical... Actually, I think it's the book Mystical Powers, not Glittering Images. Mystical Powers. Anyway, um, I think in Mystical Powers, that is the one with Evelyn Underhill's writings in it and quotes. And uh, that was where I encountered it. These uh, Susan Howitch's novels are often called surplus rippers because they have a lot of... Um, they're kind of like uh, romance novels in some level um, with a lot of spiritual content. Very strange combination there for some, but not really if you read um, books about people's lives. Uh, and it was in that book that I first encountered Evelyn Underhill's work, and I found it very helpful. So um, she said that one time she was at somebody's house for some theological, and it was just for a dinner party or something, and there was a bunch of priests and clergy and theologically astute people in one room, um, smoking cigarettes or smoking cigars or pipes. And then there was a chapel in this giant estate house. These, you know, aristocrats have these big places. And there was a chapel, like, on the other end of the hallway where they were swinging some incense, and that was going down in the chapel. And she was, like, standing between the, the parlor of theology and laughter and the, uh, and the chapel with the incense swinging and she said, that is really the mystical life, the spiritual life, to be living between these two clouds, the cloud of, of our common tobacco-fueled existence, not recommended, of course. It's dangerous, bad for us. Um, and then between the cloud of incense of what we consider to be the holy. And between those two, the sacred and profane, the ordinary and the extraordinary, we, um, we live our spiritual lives. O God, origin, sustainer, and end of all creatures, grant that your church, taught by your servant Evelyn Underhill, may continually offer to you all glory and thanksgiving and attain with your saints to the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have promised us by your Savior, Jesus Christ, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, now and forever. Amen.